Pablo and I are very, very excited to be here tonight and to have a generous exchange of ideas with all of you. Before I dive into my presentation, I just want to take a moment to thank Jess, Alex, Madeline, Sarah, Jenna, and Lou Ellen um, for their wonderful support. We felt very hosted by them, very taken care of during our stay here. Um, yeah, so thank you very much. Uh, well, okay, I will start by talking a little bit about the organization that I direct. So, FD13 is an interdisciplinary, nomadic, not-for-profit residency program. So we invite artists from across the globe to Minneapolis and St. Paul, usually from a period of about one week to four weeks, to make a new work, to engage with a new body of research, and to present it live. The organization is pretty young. It was founded five years ago in 2014 by German curator Sandra Teitke, um, and I moved to Minneapolis just three short years ago. So at the time, Sandra was looking at relocating to New York, and then she went onward to Berlin. Um, and I had been working with a residency program in the UK and on a number of performative practices, which is Sandra's focus. She has had a former life as a dancer. Um, so in some ways it seemed like a natural fit, but also she had kind of started this infrastructure and built something from the ground up, and she very generously offered to gift me this in infrastructure and to say, do with it what you will. So maybe part of the conversation we can have is about you know, these grassroots organizations and um, initiatives, but also how organizations can change when they shift leadership. Uh, myself, I, I'm not a dancer, I didn't have this other life, but I did grow up in a kind of unique pedagogical environment in that um, from kindergarten to third grade, I was enrolled in arts education. And from a very young age, one day a week I did dance, one day a week I did instrumental music, one day a week visual arts, uh, one day a week I did drama. So there was this idea of the arts in my education broadly. My mom is a writer and a pianist, my sisters are uh, musicians, so I think this idea of cross-cultural fertilization has always been very important to me as a, a value of sorts. And then I graduated from that school to a school that was uh, nine years old until 18, and you picked a major when you were nine, <laughs> actually. Um, which is quite extraordinary. So I grew up doing drama and working in the context of theater, and I really enjoy that um, opening night energy and atmosphere, and I feel like in some ways my work as a curator trying to help nourish live art and live practice is trying to chase that opening night energy, right, and imbue my own curatorial practice with that. But I also it's given me a love and affection for working collaboratively with many different kinds of voices. Um, yeah, and also making something from nothing, right? So those are my kind of curatorial values. I also say often that um, I think curators have a joint responsibility to both audiences and artists. And what's really lovely about this live format is that you can bring these two you know, bodies or groups of people together to then process the formation of a new work live. Um, so that's what we do at FD13. We're essentially a commissioning body. We try and offer artists a new platform, but also uh, through my presentation, I'll talk about this a little bit, reflect on Minneapolis's many different communities. And I've seen in many ways my activity with FD13 these past couple of years as a way 
to get to know a new city and a new context from the inside out. But before I dive into that, I'm gonna just back up and show you um, a work. This is a work from 2012 by an artist named Daria Martin. So Daria originally hails from San Francisco, but she's been living and working in the UK for many years, and she makes primarily moving image works. Thanks for DJing for me, Paul. Um, she makes primarily moving image works on 60 millimeter film. And this moving image work is the first in a trio that has to do with Daria's interest in notions of embodied spectatorship. So there's a whole body of theory that comes out of um, the West Coast in California around maybe like the late 90s, early 2000s. Writers like Vivian Sobchak are writing about, um, yeah, this, this concept of embodied spectatorship. So what do I mean by that? Um, it's essentially a notion that as a spectator watching a performance or maybe a film um, that you feel into another body as a way of processing what you're seeing. So when we go and we see like a piece of traditional ballet, part of the pleasure of that experience is watching a dancer really gracefully move their arm, right? Um, almost defying gravity, this upward thrust, but feeling that in your own body experientially somehow. Uh, another good example of this would be going to see a horror film and that moment when uh, you watch maybe someone's finger get cut off and in your body you kind of go like, right? Um, so embodied spectatorship also taps in scientifically to something called uh, mere touch synesthesia. So there's a long history of visual art engaging with different forms of synesthesia, maybe from like Kandinsky onward, right? Who looked at his paintings as a way to process music. Um, there's a lot of speculation that Kandinsky was a synesthete. Um, in fact, he was. And but mere touch synesthesia is a particular crossing of the senses where your sense of sight and your sense of touch infect each other. So if you were walking down the street and I was a mere touch synesthete and I saw you trip and hurt your knee and your knee was bloodied and I visually um, took in that information that I would actually feel your pain in my body. So it's a very porous condition, right? And it either causes people to kind of lean into this as a special skill, if you will, or to become very hermetic and to withdraw from society. So there are all these online communities as well that have popped up um, where mere touch synesthetes are able to get in touch with each other. So with that, maybe we can watch just a short clip uh, from this film, Sensorium Tests, and then I'll talk about it. Left. 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 Right. Left. Right. 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 Left. Left. Right. Left. Left. Right. Right. 
<clears throat> right. Left. Left. When I was a very young child, I yeah. had a personal space yeah. under willow trees in a damp area that formed part of the stream bed, a very shallow, almost non-existent stream bed. And for me, all stones, all bushes, trees and other plants had personalities and feelings. Right. Right. Plants and stones there could Left. feel neglect. I, I had to make sure right. I treated each of them fairly in the context Left. of their their right. personalities and, and needs. Right. Um, so what you've just seen there is a clip that is based off of an early scientific experiment, right? Um, and I should say also that this is a fairly newly discovered condition. I think at the time when Dari was working on this, it had only been discovered and solidified by the scientific community 10 years earlier, although it has existed for hundreds of years, for who knows how long, and there's a lot of speculation around what historical figures may or may not have been mere types. Um, also, interestingly, this is a side note, and I'll move on in a moment, but um, you know, you can, there's also potential, if you're a synesthete, a mere touch synesthete, to feel into objects. So if I had a pen on a table at a particular angle and you walked past it, you might feel the sharpness of the point of a pen. So this also tapped into, at the time, um, object-oriented ontology, which is a big school of theory, which comes out of Goldsmiths, where I went to school, and so did Pavel, um, as well as other places. And then Daria took this research and she brought it all together into this reader. So if you're interested in hearing more about this conversation or following up this research, then I would really encourage you to get this book. Uh, it's a reader that was published in 2017, edited by Daria in association with Oxford University Press. And I'll just read you a quick abstract. Um, in this book, the phenomenon of mere touch synesthesia provides a prism through which to re-examine contemporary art experience, critically refiguring arguments about the social turn in contemporary art that reject the traditional viewer as passive. Mirror touch synesthesia expands the possibilities of what art we might call participatory and enriches debates around the social agency of perception. So what I what I also thought was very interesting about Daria's work is that broadly she's not really interested in the conversation around art and science, although the way I've presented her work tonight maybe you would think she is. She was more interested in synesthesia as a broader metaphor for interdisciplinary practice, right? So a school of theory, theory that was looking at um, the intersection of performance and movie image practices, which has become my area of focus curatorially through this kind of formative experience with Daria in this particular artwork, right? So thinking about the bleeding of the senses as a larger metaphor for the bleeding of disciplines artistically. Um, and then at the same time, I was also running an experimental residency program called Platform. This is um, at Sight Gallery in Sheffield, where I was working at the time, and I inherited this model. Uh, it's a long-running program that the gallery has, and so we felt a sense of responsibility towards that. But essentially what it does is it gives over one of our gallery spaces to artists through an open call nationally. Um, and then artists are uh, encouraged to kind of take their studio or a new work that they want to make and then transplant it into the space of the gallery. And audiences can walk in and out throughout this work in progress. Um, 
which sounds simpler than it actually is. For all of you artists in the audience, you'll know that your studio isn't always an active place, right? So this becomes like a highly performative uh, practice. And I was interested in the way that these two artists, Lucy Beach and Edward Thomason, tackled the proposal and that they were kind of reflexive of this model, um, dare I say even a bit critical of it. So they made a work that was titled Public Relations. And then each, they were in residence for three weeks. And each week, they kind of tested out choreography with different actors. They're very careful to use the term actors in their work, not performers. Um, so Lucy and Ed met on their BA in 2007, and they're both early career artists. They were interested in ideas of performance outside of the space of a traditional theatrical context. Often they pull in um, these kind of neoliberal references of like the team building exercise or the office environment or the conference, right? And you can see that very clearly in the work here. Um, it was represented at Maureen Paley Gallery a few months after we did the project at site. But we have four actors here who are all dressed in this kind of anonymous corporate garb. So originally we had four actors at site and half female, half male cast. And for the second iteration of the performance, uh, they chose to present the work with an all-male cast, which then shifts the gender relations as well. I'll talk through this work a little bit. So in the very beginning, we have this older male actor who comes out who's noticeably older than the three other actors. Um, and he, he does this kind of like clicking with the microphone, right? And he sets a 4-4 four, four beat. And if you're a dancer, this is a really traditional way to be able to count in your head and keep track of where you are in space at any given time. And the piece builds. So initially this choreography is done without any music in the background. Um, and just one solo dancer, and then slowly there's kind of a second phase of the piece, and other dancers or actors uh, rather join in, and then you reach this phase of the work, right? Arguably the third week, where you have this relentlessly optimistic, optimistic music, but also these performers are smiling amidst this incredibly violent action. So you get a feel for, for how they engaged with this. So now we'll switch to talking a little bit about FD13's history. Um, so this was the very first FD13 event that was done. FD13 stands for Fire Department 13. So this was the building that initially housed our program. We slowly started to break out of this building and do projects um, around the city and actually made an intentional choice to give the building up. So we're completely nomadic. We don't have a space, which means that we can keep our overheads really low and we can funnel more money into um, creating a really wonderful, hospitable experience for artists. And if you've done residencies, you know that all the hospitality can kind of make or break your experience, right? Um, but also we're able to funnel more money into paying our performers and collaborators well. We are wage certified and we're one of the first organizations outside of New York to be wage certified actually. And then this is a work by Jen Rosenblatt at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. So we went from the space of this converted fire department to working with organizations across Minneapolis like The Walker or MIA, which is our major encyclopedic 
organization in town. And I'm going to breeze through these just to give you a flavor of all the things we've done. This is a project by Augustina Woodgate, where she took up residence at the Mong Town Marketplace. So there's a large um, Hmong community in Minneapolis. It's mostly Nordic, um, but there are large Hmong and Somali communities, and we've done projects with both of those groups. Um, so this is a nomadic radio station, a nomadic program. So we brought in practitioners and broadcast that. Uh, this is work by Adam Linder, who's actually an Australian artist from Sydney originally. Adam um, went to work with Michael Clark's dance company at the young age of 14 or 15 uh, and has been working internationally ever since. But this is part of a suite of works called Choreographic Services, which are meant to make the labor of museological spaces more apparent, right? So you might walk into a gallery space and see a dancer who's gliding around the room, but is also miming the action of dusting or sweeping. Um, so thinking about kind of the labor that happens in these spaces when we're not there, uh, and the kind of support staff that is needed to make these spaces function properly. In this work, um, there's an interplay with a uh, representation of a John L. Judd sculpture, which of course, you know, is a minimalist work, um, a sculpture, a sculptor who engages with ideas of finished fetish and also the surface. So of course, when I walk into a museum and I see a Donald Judd sculpture, which is covered in even a thin layer of dust, the art historian in me gets really irritated, right? Um, so it's a nice investigation of those codes. This is a piece I love. Um, so these are three sound artists who came to town and investigated the Nabati cape, which is a traditional Georgian shepherd's outfit. Uh, and we did a workshop. You can see some pictures on the left hand here. This, that's the upper floor of the firehouse, and we still had it. Um, so audiences could uh, learn from these artists. There was a kind of soundtrack going on in the background, which created a certain psychological headspace. But you also made your own Nabati cape or sound sculpture. Um, so very simple. And then they went to the park across the street and did an anti-cold dance because I've not mentioned the weather yet, but it is incredibly cold in Minneapolis. It's the coldest major metropolitan uh, region in the United States. It's basically Canada, right? Um, if you've seen Fargo, then that's the area of the country that we're talking about. And I'll just share a quick clip, because I have so much affection for this particular project. It almost looks like Stonehenge or something to me. with the format of the screening of the talk of the workshop but I think performative practices um, and movement-based research is really at the core of what we do even though we are moving into these more interdisciplinary spaces and the kind of cross-fertilization that I described earlier. This is a wonderful piece by Ligia Lewis, um, amazing choreographer. This was essentially her attempt to occupy this minor position um, this work went on to win a Bessie Award for choreography and uh, was actually shortlisted on the New York Times 2017 Best Choreographic Pieces of the Year. Um, so FD13 can kind of prompt artists to start these investigations, but then the works can go off and have other lives. And that kind of collaborative model when you're doing live-based work, it's not like an exhibition where you have a partner institution and you have like a neat, tidy touring package that you can then propose. The work can grow and morph and have another life, and I'm, I, I'm kind of okay with that. 
right with letting the work go and have these other iterations. Um, so this work became something very different. If you Google the trailer for Minor, minor Matter, there's a lot of other codes that are, are being pulled into the present iteration of the piece. Um, and then this is a work by Mariah Evans. I actually experienced this work, so this is around the time that I moved to Minneapolis, a choreographer based in New York, and I want to show this because this is a good example of an artist-run space that we've collaborated with. So we not only work with places like The Walker or Mia, but we work regularly with lots of different artist-run spaces around um, Minneapolis and St. Paul, and um, also make works in the public realm. So we've made works in the city's skyway system because it's so cold downtown. There is this almost like hamster cage of above-ground bridges that allow you to drive downtown, park your car, and um, pop up into a building and then navigate all of downtown with ever, without ever having to touch down on the ground outside at street level. This is my first season of FD13. So when I moved to Minneapolis, I felt like every other person I met there was some kind of healthcare practitioner. There's this huge agglomerate of hospitals in the city. The Mayo Clinic is just a two-hour drive south in Rochester, so a, a huge um, center for medical research. Minneapolis is also a major place for gender reassignment surgery, which is very interesting. I teach art history, theory, and criticism at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and 34% of our students identify as gender non-binary. And that number was incredibly high to me when I came in. Um, so the city kind of attracts these communities in interesting ways. It's also um, a major place to come for rehab for rehabilitation. So in lots of different ways, there are kind of conversations about the body, about what is a good body, what is a bad body, health and illness, and I wanted to start thematic seasons that would reflect on the psychology and different conversations and communities and industries in Minneapolis uh, quite directly. So the first artist that I invited in to respond to this very unique context is Patrick Staff an artist who's shown here at IMA, uh, so there's a nice crossover. Maybe many of you saw Patrick's work here. Um, it's the foundation that was shown here, right? Yep. Is that right? Yeah, okay. Oh, I've got such love for that piece. Um, so I met Patrick when Patrick was working on their, the film that follows on from um, the foundation, which is Weed Killer. So this is a moving image work, which is based off of Catherine Lord's memoir, In the Summer of Her Baldness. So Catherine at the time is undergoing a course of chemotherapy and cancer treatment, and is writing these long emails to her family and friends about her diagnosis and where she, you know, um, her prognosis at the time, and she invents this character called her baldness as a way of giving herself critical distance from her illness. And she writes essentially what is an incredibly moving cancer memoir. And Patrick became very interested in this text in that um, they were focusing on ideas of, you know, substances that can be both poisonous and curative. But more broadly, their practice looks at the porosity of the body, right, and the substances that we ingest, ideas of cleanliness. They've done some great programming um, recently, I think it was with Extra in LA, um, around needle exchanges, uh, which also taps into this wider body of research. And I just want to show you a quick clip from Weed Killer. 
Um, it's also filmed with this infrared photography, um, which is usually used for forensic purposes, but maps heat patterns in the body. So another way of kind of showing beneath the skin. I'm going to pause it there. Um, but I just wanted to take you to the point in the film where the actress who is uh, reading Patrick's reconfiguration of Catherine's text where she explains the title, Weed Killer. So it's the idea that these chemotherapy chemicals would easily fit in on any, um, any shelf in your garage that had weed, poison, weed killer or other poisonous chemicals. Uh, Patrick and I also talked a lot about transitioning, right? And the decision around whether or not to medically transition. And um, if you're trans, part of the weight of this decision is that if you take these chemicals into your body, then they hugely up your risk of developing cancer or contracting cancer later in life. It's the same for women who undergo IVF, IVF treatment. Um, from, from here, from this really wonderful film, and I would encourage you if you ever have a chance to screen it or to see the full-length film, it's beautiful and moving, and there are these kind of lush choreographic sequences in the second half. Um, there's also a really nice kind of body doubling that is happening in the work, which I find complicated and really intriguing. So it's like Patrick reconfiguring Catherine's text, and Catherine is quite staunchly like, this is your work, not my work, even though it's based on my work. So they have like an interesting dynamic, the two of them. But then um, this trans feminine actress, Deborah, who Patrick is very close with, then re-performing uh, Patrick's selection and Catherine's words and imbuing the text with her own agency. So there's this nice slippage and transmutation that happens in this work. So from that piece, we decided to work together on Patrick's first live work uh, fully live work in five years at the time. So this is a work called uh, Bathing, and then the original title is in parentheses Drunkenness. So uh, <laughs> looking at, um, again, ideas of contamination, it's a, a work, a choreographic work that is performed by one dancer, Kaya Lovestrand, uh, who's based in Minneapolis. So Kaya kind of dances inside and outside of the shallow basin of water. As an audience member, you might have water splash on you. Gradually, the water gets contaminated and a bit dirty. And so you have this kind of guttural bodily reaction to what's happening in front of you. The work was then reconfigured into moving image piece, which was shown um, at Made in LA, the Hammers uh, Biennial every two years, and very excitingly, Kaya was able to travel with Patrick to LA and make this work. So Kaya is a very talented dancer who went to Bennington, which has a great dance program, um, and found herself back in Minneapolis right around the time that Patrick had come to town, uh, and still find her feet, I would say, at the time. But it was great for us to be able to pair them. We also do a lot of work with students in the city, so we see our artists as peer mentors of sorts, especially when they're early career artists. Uh, here's a picture of Patrick giving a talk to students at the University of Minnesota. We've worked with Carleton College, U of M, MCAD. There's, you know, Minneapolis and St. Paul are like university towns. There's so many different colleges and so many great programs. So that's something I'm very excited about building our work with the students locally. The second artist in the trio is um, a Berlin-based performer and writer and musician. She actually just dropped her first album, uh, Johanna Hevda. So Johanna 
is someone who identifies as chronically ill. And uh, we worked with an organization called Triple Canopy, which is a publishing body in New York. To um, Triple Canopy had invited Johanna to write an essay for um, <coughs> the issue before last, I believe, called Risk Pool, which just happened to also be around these ideas of health and illness. And one of Triple Canopy's senior editors, Laura Mimosa Montez, also a wonderful poet in her own right, is based in Minneapolis and doing her PhD at the University of Minnesota. So she came to this launch where I was talking about Johanna's work, and we decided to partner up. Um, so Johanna's essay, Letter to a Young Doctor, dropped about a week or two before she came to Minneapolis to do her residency. And I'll just back up a bit. The first work that I engage with by Johanna is called Sick Woman Theory. So if you go on YouTube and you Google Johanna Hebda Sick Woman Theory, there's this wonderful event that she did at Human Resources in LA where she basically is um, kind of coming out as a chronically ill person and talking about uh, the forms of chronic illness that she battles with in public for the first time. It's, in, it's incredibly moving. Um, around that time, the Black Lives Matter was just, Black Lives Matter movement was starting to percolate in the US. Uh, and Johanna found herself ill, and a lot of her friends were going out and protesting. So it started with this very simple proposition, which is, if the central strategy of protest is to go be a body in space, and I'm confined to the rectangle of my bed, then where's my agency? Um, and Johanna is also tapped into a lot of these online communities as well, which is an interesting return to Daria's work for me personally. Um, but, but the second essay in this series that follows on from Sick Woman Theory is um, Letter to a Young Doctor, which she calls a document of emergency. And this is much more personal than the first body of research. Sick Woman Theory is kind of hinges on the ideas of Hannah Arendt, and I mean, it's, it's a theoretical document. Letter to a Young Doctor um, is a kind of very personal, prose-based letter to this young medical practitioner who's Korean-American, um, talking about, she wrote to Johanna, and Johanna's talking about her experience of being a patient um, in a psychological ward. Uh, so this is available online, and I actually have a list of references that I'm going to give to the IMA team for you all to follow up if you'd like to. Um, but then we had Johanna and Lara in conversation kind of unpicking this text together. Johanna is also quite witchy. <laughs> I'm not, but I'm, I'm really interested in those who are. Um, and through Johanna's work, I discovered that there's a whole community of witches in South Minneapolis. So there's actually a eight block area which uh, it's kind of a joke, but also half serious, uh, which there's a group of people who are trying to designate this as an official witch district. Um, and there's all these amazing female-run businesses. It's also interested in the idea of the witch politically. Um, the suffragettes used to go out, and they would protest in witch garb. There's a great conference that happened at the ICA uh, about a year before this called Witchy Methodologies, which was organized by an artist and a bunting branch who I've never met but have a lot of respect for. Um, and also at the time, you know, Donald Trump was newly elected and he was using this rhetoric of the witch. So it really, it feels like there's something happening around witchiness and, and visual art. And um, But we did a writing workshop at a space called The Future, which is an Aquarian lab. And participants could come and bring 
um, information to do their charts or bring their chart with them. And then based off of their chart, we um, did a writing exercise looking at ideas around fate, right? And what's fated and what's not. And of course, when you're chronically ill, a lot of your life can feel fated for you. Um, but this was more looking at tropes from mythology. Uh, and then the last work that I'll talk about in this trio is a piece by Mariana Simnett, who is an early career artist based in London. Mariana's work, how do I boil it down simply? She, she's interested in literary parables that are often quite dark, but then also childlike, so Brother, Brothers Grimm-esque narratives. Um, and also thinking about these archetypal female characters who go on some kind of quest or journey. They kind of unapologetically engage with the realm of musical theater as well, which I like. I think sometimes that can feel really unfashionable to the art world. Um, the piece that Mariana was working on when I met her is this work called The Needle in the Larynx, um, which again has a parable-like title, right? Needle in the Larynx. And she approached a doctor and asked this doctor to lower the toner or the pitch of her voice and did so through a Botox treatment. Um, and that treatment, if you're a transgender individual, is something that you might contemplate doing, but um, Mariana just had this done as a one-off procedure, um, and the effects last for about three months. So we'll watch a minute or two clip. I should also say, if needles make you squeamish, then you might want to close your eyes for portions of this. identifies the muscle that we need to inject. Can you just put your head back for me? There's a vein right on top of it. You may end up with a bit of a bruise. Say E. E. That's right. Just relax now. A little scratch. Say E. So the work's a kind of slow um, pan, or the needle very slowly, slowly, at an incredibly like, uh, lethargic speed moves towards her neck. So you're in this realm of suspense throughout the entire uh, video work. From here, Mariana and I decided, um, at first we were, because sound is such an important element in her work, we wanted to make a radio play, but then this slowly morphed into Mariana doing her very first actual play right for living bodies in space. So it was her very first fully live work and her first um, work in the context of a theater. So I'll just show you a few behind the scenes things. Um, we cast this young performing performer Emmy Moncrief as the kind of central archetypal girl in this larger fairy tale. So this is her during rehearsal. And then here's Emmy. The work is called The Midden. It was set in a fictional trash heap and had this kind of ecological bent to it as well. Um, Mariana wanted uh, initially for there to be like a sensory aspect for you to smell 
like this rotten smell when you went into the space of the theater. So the residency takes me to really interesting places. The first week she was there, we went to, to farmers markets and got all these rotten pears that we tried to like rot and retain, and it didn't work. But my car smelled like molded fruit for a few a few months afterwards. Um, yeah, so that's just a, a slide from there, and then. Um, and then what you can't see through the documentation is uh, that we worked with a sound engineer and this was kind of Mariana's mentor throughout the project. We often pair artists with some form of mentor who can either offer them conceptual or technical support. Um, can we hit play? So that's just a quick um, clip from the Instagram takeover that Mariana did of our account. But essentially she was pulling all of these noises from different horror films and different tropes and then all of the sound for this play was live mixed. So it was maybe the most technically ambitious project that we've ever done with FD13. Uh, it was a real joy to do um, and kind of like baptism by fire, like we did a lot in a period of four weeks. Mariana wrote all the songs, she wrote the dialogue, we workshopped content, all the staging, worked with the sound and the lighting technician, and for me it was a great return to my theatrical roots, it was a lot of fun. Um, so I'll end by telling you about one last project that we're working on currently. Uh, we're working with an artist named Diane Simpson, who is 82. Um, so Diane's work, she's, she's based in Chicago and she's kind of been working faithfully in the Chicago art scene and has been very important to the artistic ecosystem there, but under-recognized for many, many years, right? Her career has been punctuated at various points by having children and uh, being in and out of pedagogy um, and also supporting her husband's career. They have great, very um, supportive relationship, the two of them. But her work is primarily sculpture and sculptural, and it's very formal, I would say. So those sculptures depart from the histories of textiles, garments, but also architectural histories. And then she'll fuse these together to investigate the sociological roles of both traditions. So this work uh, on the right in, is based on the peplum tunic of ancient Greece, which is worn by both men and women, and we see it in our fashion today, right? A shirt that's just here, and then it has a little, like, right at the bottom, a tiny skirt. Um, but also Art Deco architecture, which she has an incredible fondness for. This is a sculpture which is based off of um, a cape-like structure, but also English thatched roofs. Um, and then this, of course, is based off of a Japanese pagoda. So she kind of it's, uh, goes all around the world and looks at different cultures and different traditions. Um, and then this is the piece that gave me an idea for a very particular invitation I wanted to extend to Diane. This is a piece that I saw at Corbett versus Dempsey, her commercial gallery in Chicago. Um, and wrote a little bit about. So this is from that series based off of Art Deco forms and also peplum tunics, but when I looked at this sculpture, it felt like it was petrified but also anthropomorphized, which is maybe not surprising because the works are based off of garments, but then it, the head was just turning to one side. So it felt like there was motion captured in this 
figure or character, and I thought, what if we invited Diane to make costumes and then animated them um, with the help of dancers and a choreographer locally associated with the architecture school at the University of Minnesota. So this, is, this project has been a longer burn for us. I had my first studio visit with Diane two years ago now, and then in September she came out to Minneapolis and we went all around St. Paul and, and all the various neighborhoods to look at unique architectural structures which could maybe be fodder for a wider project. So this is us at the Art Deco Bar in St. Paul, which again was like a new discovery for me. Um, F, F. Scott Fitzgerald lived in this hotel and wrote uh, here. And this is her on the right with her husband Ken and also Ross Elfine who's um, based at Carleton College locally and is a historian of performance and architecture and is writing on the project. This is Diane um, looking at the Merce Cunningham dance collection at the Walker, so Pavel kindly organized for us to go into their storage space and play around with the costumes for a day. And finally, this is the building that we settled on, which is the kind of center, center point, right? The kind of kernel that the project is organized around. This is the former Women's City Club of St. Paul, which has a phenomenal history. Um, so it was set up by an organization of women um, in a way for cultural advancement, but also just to have a place for their own intellectual stimulation. There were a lot of male clubs at this time. This is the first female club. Um, Gertrude Stein spoke here. There's an amazing literary history in St. Paul. Um, this is very close to the Art Deco bar I just showed you. Um, and then Diane, rather than kind of taking the exterior architectural form, which reminds me of like a ship hall maybe, uh, as the basis for her project. She zooms in on particular architectural details, and here you can see, you know, she's just taken the, um, the patina of the door that's kind of like gold color. There's also a room that is treated with gold leaf from the 1930s. Um, so that will give the palette for the project, but also like a lighting fixture that is translated into some kind of uh, bodily architecture. And the last thing I will show you is a quick snippet of Diane testing out this costume. So this that was a, a representation of the first costume. This is the second costume, and this is a clip that Diane sent me of her trying it on for the first time. Right, so Diane is an artist who is kind of in silo to her studio. She works in a shed. The back of it. Um, she works in a shed behind her house and she's very faithfully worked alone in her studio for many decades. So uh, there was a moment in our dialogue where I was explaining, you know, how we find the dancers, what voices we pull into the project, and she was like, wow, this is going to be really collaborative, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, Diane, it is. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, but there are these great costumes which are coming out of it and uh, these will be presented on June 1st. <laughs> yeah, they're really funny. With that, I will hand over to Paul, who can talk a bit more about his experience of working at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. Hey, hi everyone, thank you for coming. And I wanted to echo Sarah's thanks at the start to everyone here at IMA for having us. Um, I'm gonna talk about a few projects and try to keep it brief, because I know that we wanna leave time for questions and conversation, but um, I had a slightly different uh, route in that I've kind of really worked through mostly larger scale institutions. I haven't really worked in, in smaller scale institutions before. Um, I studied sociology and cultural theory, so I also didn't come from a very um, traditional background, mostly curating 
um, students come from art history courses. Um, I came from a different perspective. After Goldsmiths, I started working um, at the Henry Moore Institute in Leeds under the directorship of Lisa Leferve, who's an amazing writer and scholar who also taught four of us here in the room, those who went to Goldsmiths. She was uh, an amazing lecturer, teacher, and also my boss, and still my mentor today. And um, under the time that Lisa was there for five years, the Henry Moore Institute was really, um, it, it's a center devoted to the study of sculpture, but under her tenure, I think it was really a place that was really devoted to very rigorous research in terms of thinking about what sculpture could be. Um, the Henry Moore Institute is part of the Henry Moore Foundation, but it never shows Moore's work. It's a place which is really devoted to the study and discussion of modern and contemporary sculpture. And that was done through a series of exhibitions, conferences, really rich public programs, research fellowships, an amazing archive, a great library. Um, I'll talk a little bit about this show in a minute, but this gives you a sense of the, um, the, the, the way that this place exists in the city. It's, a, it's on a major street. Um, it has this incredible black granite facade. It really stands out. Um, a very, um, very interesting research-driven place. Um, I started in uh, 2011, I think, and I was there for four years. And um, I just want to talk a little bit about a few projects that I curated when I was there, and then talk about the Walker Art Center. So the video that you saw was from an exhibition that I curated in 2013 called Indifferent Matter from Object to Sculpture, which really looked at a very, very basic question of sculpture, which is when does an object become a sculpture? What are the vehicles through which something as ordinary as a pile of candy can become a sculpture? How the act of naming, but also how the act of display gives an object that status. And I wanted to look at this by really thinking about objects that do not belong in the white cube, that do not belong in the context of contemporary art. And so I looked at this problem through juxtaposing four 20th century artworks with objects that came predominantly from natural history or ethnographic museums. Um, and as I look back on this exhibition, I think that intergenerational, cross-historical, interdisciplinary way of working is, is really important to me. Um, so as you came into the galleries, you would be faced by an amazing work by Felix Gonzalez Torres, which is called Untitled Placebo, one of his candy piles. This work never really exists because when you have a box of candy in storage, it's simply sweets, it's nothing more. And then the moment you install the work, according to quite loose parameters that the artist really generously invites you as a curator to make some, have some agency within, the work then materializes um, and it becomes a sculpture. As a sculpture, it's never really fixed because audience members constantly take pieces of candy, so the sculpture also enters your body. It kind of moves beyond the space that, um, that strives to hold it. And I showed this alongside a collection of Neolithic Chinese jade objects. The round discs are called B, and the columns are called Kong. They were found in graves, so like the Gonzalez Torres work, they have a, a relationship to the body. Um, and just like the Gonzalez Torres work in that that piece is never really fully there, similarly here, meaning is never fixed. 
we, we know nothing about these objects. We know that they were found in graves, however, we have no information that really tells us what their symbolism was, and even the names that we give these are incorrect. The names come from a time when the Chinese language was nothing like it was at the time when these objects were made. So that idea of how um, an object can resist interpretation was also really important for this exhibition. Hans Hacke's grass cube, which, like the Gonzales Taurus, changes over the course of the exhibition. You never fully see it. You see it just at a, a particular moment in time. It's a work that grows during the exhibition. And I juxtapose that work with um, uh, a rock that you can see here on the right-hand side, and on the surface of it, there was a newly discovered mineral. Every year we discover about 100 or so new minerals. So the process is that you find a mineral, you name it, you go with an application to the International Mineralogical Association, and they decide whether or not to agree the name. And I worked with a curator from the Natural History Museum in London who specializes in naming new minerals to show a specimen in the exhibition. And when we opened the show, um, the mineral was not named, so we had a label that said mineral currently undergoing the classification process. Halfway through the show, the mineral was named. We had to change the label. And then as the show continued, we already had a name for this particular mineral, which was Diego Gatite. And so that idea, again, that something that is two million years old could exist without human um, in interpretation or meaning, um, and it escaping visibility was, was um, something I was really, really interested in. In the middle gallery, I showed you a few clips before, there was an installation that brought together Andy Warhol's Silver Clouds, a work that needs the process of exhibiting to become an artwork, with two unidentified Greco-Roman sculptures from the British collection, uh, the British Museum collection in London. Um, these sculptures have really fascinating history in that they have been named and renamed and named and renamed, I think, five or six times. Um, and I invited a British artist called Stephen Clayton to display these objects. So the installation in which they're housed um, Stephen became really interested through a series of really great visits that we had to the, the bowels of the British Museum where there are trays and trays and trays of thumbs, ankles, unidentified objects. And he decided to show these in structures that reference the furnishings that these objects are surrounded by every day. Really drab mesh wiring, um, particular materials that are coated with uh, conservation film, um, and uh, you can see on the L-shaped plinths are also ratchet straps, which are constantly used to move sculpture around the stores. The final gallery in this show brought together um, a work by Robert Smithson, which is called Asphalt Lump from 1969, which is um, an object that he didn't do anything to. He found it in, a, in an area in Germany where they were producing steel, and he loved the shape of it. And through the very act of naming, he gave it the status of a sculpture. And then alongside of it, I showed um, a few objects, which are pieces of flint that can be found in British collections across the country, referred to as eoliths, or dawnstones. And there was a very charismatic amateur archaeologist at the end of the 19th century in the UK who convinced many, many people that these were um, the first man-made instruments. They're not. They're just bits of flint. But today, there are still several collections in the UK that refer to these as eoliths. So that status was, was something that I wanted to, to really look at. I think in looking back at um, the way that I work, the proximity to artists is very important. Um, 
in the solo shows that I've curated, I, I just, just thinking about them now, I realize I, I, I predominantly curate exhibitions of women artists. They, they figure very strongly in the, in the shows that I work on. And this example that I'll talk about really grew from um, an amazing experience of coming across this room at Palazzo Abatelis in Palermo, which was redesigned by the Venetian architect Carlos Scarpa in the 1950s. Um, and I saw this room and I thought, this is so weird. Why would anyone show objects in this incredibly personal way? The object you see on the left-hand side against the blue background is actually positioned in such a way that you can, well, you could in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you could move the sculpture so that you could experience it in that tactile way. The sculpture there by Francesco Laurana, the base is perfectly shaped to the outline of the sculpture. You can just see it in that image. It's actually hovering. It does. It's not placed on a solid plane. It's actually got two pins, so it has a lot of air. And I was completely um, blown away by this room, and I emailed three artists immediately. I emailed Stephen, who I just talked about. I emailed Goshka Matsuga, and I emailed Carol Beauvais. They all got really, really excited. Um, Carol was the artist who kind of responded in the strongest way. She didn't know who Scarpa was. And through a three and a half year process, I worked with Carol to curate the first survey of her work at that point, but also to position her in dialogue with Scarpa. In the English language kind of world, Scarpa is mostly known as an architect, but he also was an incredible exhibition designer, making furniture for several museums in Italy after the war. Um, and I, I wanted to look at that that history, less so at his architectural practice, more at how he gives objects meaning through through the materials that he places them on. So the first gallery brought together examples of works by Carol where using a very minimal language of display, she turns pieces of coral or shell or a big chunk of wood that she found by Ikea in Brooklyn in the water. She turns them into sculptures through display. And then playing with that kind of ontology, I showed Scarpa's emptied exhibition furniture which you can see two examples of there on the left-hand side, with nothing in them, just as if they were sculptures. In the central gallery, we showed um, a meeting of the two. This is a display, uh, and again, these kind of binaries or these ontologies are super interesting to me. Um, here we have Carol taking three sculptures by Scarpa that were at the Venice Biennial in 1968 in an environment uh, called Ambiente. And here she is giving them a new life, giving them a new display. So the three sculptures are the smallest. So there's a quite decorative one um, on the white pedestal at the top, a long, long um, six meter sculpture that um, looks like the instrument that the gondolieri use in, in Venice. And then there's a, a gold plated sculpture on the bottom. And these are housed on exhibition furniture designed by Carol, but also on a sculpture that Carol made. So that kind of distinction between use, function, and then artwork is something that she's playing with here. And then the final gallery looked at um, kind of, it was like you would experience the show and then you would get to the final gallery and then everything would come together. So here you have architectural prototypes um, of details that, that Scarpa uh, designed for his, for his buildings. The Henry Moore Institute is devoted to the study of sculpture, but it's not a place that's really um, thinking of sculpture in, that, in a very uh, kind of didactic or singular way. We usually, the exhibitions we curated really looked at sculpture in relation to architecture, design, moving image performance, and I think this show is a really good example of that. So here we had a really interesting opportunity. There's always an opportunity in dire moments. We had to do a renovation of one of the galleries, 
And so we had this period of having to close the institute, the galleries, for a number of like two months. And we thought, well, how do we get around this? And we curated an exhibition called The Event Sculpture, which consisted of nine moments in which every two weeks, artists presented works as events outside of the institute, in front of that stark black granite facade. And then afterwards, those works would travel into the galleries. So for the time that we had construction, the galleries were closed. And then after, I think, three or four events, we opened the show with the first four works, and then every two weeks, a new work would be added to the gallery. Um, the list is intergenerational. There are some figures who are a bit under-acknowledged within um, this group, people like especially Maria Nordman, and then younger artists. And for, for many of these artists, it was kind of inviting them to respond to this invitation. How do you present a work in a very, very public space outside of the institution and then within the galleries? We started with Simon Forti, a really beautiful piece called Slantboard. We also worked with uh, Roman Siegner, who uh, levitated um, a chair outside of the Henry Moore Institute by way of a jet engine, so you can see it flying above the crowd, which was really fun. Um, I'm there in the front, quite nervous, because I was convinced that the jet engine would burst above <laughs> everyone, but there were no casualties that day. Um, we also worked on a beautiful piece with Lara Favoretto, whereby uh, this is a work, one of her first works from 98 called Doing, where five people are chipping away at marble blocks, and we recorded the sounds. And much to the irritation of all of our colleagues, we placed them later on, the speakers, in interstitial spaces in the buildings, behind the front desk, in the basement, behind a gallery door, permeating the institute. We also worked with Urs Fischer, who had a ton of clay delivered on the front steps. He showed up. It was a school holiday, and the entire it felt like the entire city and everyone's kids joined in making these um, sculptures. And then the facade, which is this kind of minimalist, really difficult, stark, you know, um, area, became covered with sculptures. And here's just a few images of uh, of the show once it opened in the galleries. So from the Henry Moore Institute, I moved to the Walker, which is a, a quite different beast. It's a um, it's a larger institution, although I think it's not that big, actually, compared to other places. It's a very special place in that it's very unusual for the U.S. It's an interdisciplinary art center, <coughs> um, meaning that labor is divided by visual arts, moving image, performing arts, architecture, and design education, and public programs. But the institution celebrates all of the porosity and the collaboration between these de departments. Um, it's, a, it's an institution that is in the center of town and also right next to the U.S.'s largest inner-city sculpture gardens, which is the Minneapolis Sculpture Garden, which you can see here. The walkers on the right-hand side, and across the street is the garden, which is a model for really public-private partnership. It opened in 1988, and many, many of the gardens, sculpture parks in the U.S., have looked to us as a kind of model of how a public city-owned space can collaborate with an arts institution. The city owns the land we program um, the events that happen there. Moving to the US, which is a place that I've never lived in before, has also shifted, I think, um, many of the ways that I work. When I look back at the Henry Moore Institute, I'm, I, I think of it much more as a kind of scholarly and academic context. And now moving to um, a more public-facing institution, I feel like my responsibilities are slightly different in terms of the way that I work with artists. And the first way to really think about that was through a permanent collection display called IMU UR2, which opened a year after 
Trump was uh, elected, we had a very different show in mind during the election, and then once the election happened, we thought, well, there's no point in doing this particular show. We should really respond. And so we were thinking about, well, how do works in the permanent collection, how do they gather new meaning and resonance, given the political, social, and cultural reality that we're living in? And so the collection display is really looking at themes of citizenship, belonging, nationality, borders, migration. Um, it was a really great opportunity to think about how artworks change over time. The first work you see in the show is by Nobuaki Kojima from 1976 in the top left corner there. Made at a time of fraught US-Japanese relations, but today we felt that as you entered the show, and this being the, the, the kind of icon of the exhibition, we felt that it communicated a kind of sense of entrapment and suffocation that we feel certainly living in the US today. And in the bottom right corner is a work by the Chilean artist Alfredo Yar, which takes a really iconic photograph from Life magazine of the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. and then repeats it twice with the black dots corresponding to the overwhelming majority of black mourners at the funeral and the very, very, very few red dots corresponding to the white people at that funeral. And this work was made in 1995, but it wasn't shown until 2015, which is the time when the Black Lives Matter movement really was galvanizing. And for the artist, he felt that after 20 years, this was the moment when he could show this work. And that was something that we were really interested in the context of thinking through, well, how do these works from the past gather new meaning? And then with every show we do, there's rich opportunity for public programming. So in the top right, we've had a series of artists responding to Harry Young's work, which is this piece here, um, a drawing, also an installation that if you accept the terms of, uh, you, can, you can enter into. We've had many artists engage with that space. Um, Carrie, who's very, uh, very much follows her work, uh, has been Skyping in at like four in the morning in the UK to watch what's happening in the galleries. It's been pretty amazing. And then bottom left corner is a a discussion we had on the 50th anniversary of that particular photo from Life magazine um, being taken, and we actually have Gordon Parks as the photographer, his great niece, um, here as part of a, a, a group of people discussing the photo, as well as two super young 17-year-old Black Lives Matter activists talking about what this particular image means today. Um, there are a number of works from the collection that here's Post Commodity, who created an, an incredible ephemeral land artwork where they had these balloons tethered across the US-Mexico border. This is one of them. So there are name, not really a range of works in the show that respond to this idea. And then the show that just opened um, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, that I've been working on since I started is called The Body Electric. Um, this show is um, 50 or so artists, about 100 works, um, and it really grew from my frustration of seeing artists who are of, of my generation, artists in their 30s, early 40s, making work with digital technology to rethink the body and identity. I was really frustrated with the way that they were being really shown on a kind of singular generational plane, and I wanted to really disrupt that. And so the exhibition really looks at how artists engage with this place between the world we're in and the world on screen, but through the lens of the last 50 years to rethink identity, sexuality, gender, race, and belonging. Um, the show has a very historical grounding um, in that the first gallery really establishes this moment in the 1960s when Charlotte Moorman, Shigeko Kubota, Volvo Still were the first to take the TV and really desacralize it. Um, Looking back at the Walker's history has been super important, and here we have 
an installation by Joan Jonas. I invited Joan to look back at a moment in 1974 when she performed a work called Funnel at the Walker, which she hadn't revisited since 74. And this is 45 years later, she created an installation based on that original performance. Um, so looking back at our history and even looking back at our collection has been really um, important in terms of catalyzing this exhibition. The video, the history of video art is very, and even the history of kind of figuration and sculpture is very dominated by male practitioners. And I wanted to reposition, recalibrate that history. So the show is predominantly women artists, I think 70 or 75%, with a very strong representation of artists of color. Many of these artists are finally having a moment, they're being seen, and I'm, I really wanted to position them in this generous 50-year trajectory. So that if you think about this topic, you might imagine, you know, works by Robert Gober or Bruce Nauman. They are in the exhibition, but they have quite minor um, presences compared to artists like Martin Sims or Sandra Perry or Lynn Hirschman Neeson, who are really given much more ample space. Um, the show is intergenerational, and that was really reflected in the opening public programs. Here I have the real pleasure of speaking to Joan on the same stage where she performed 45 years ago, and then that was followed by a conversation with Zach Blass, a young artist who created a commission especially for the show, which is um, uh, an AI-powered holographic elf that predicts the future of prediction. Um, and uh, it's really a kind of critique of, um, this is, he imagines this work as Peter Thiel's desk. Peter Thiel is like this kind of horrible, awful right-wing man who um, established a company called Palantir Technologies, which really problematically takes a lot of the kind of folklore of Lord of the Rings and maps it onto the real world. You know, like Mordor corresponds to, I think, you know, predominantly Muslim populations, and it's super problematic. Um, he is, uh, you know, pictured frequently with Trump, a big supporter, um, and Zach wanted to critique Palantir Technologies, which is a company in Silicon Valley that uses predictive algorithms for profit. He wanted to critique that through a kind of queered lens of a, of a holographic elf. It's, it's pretty amazing. It sits in our lobby and interacts with everyone. It won't shut up. Um, so I'll just finish with two things. Walker has an incredible history, as I mentioned, of cross-pollination between disciplines. So we had Merce Cunningham and John Cage performing in our galleries, Merce Cunningham's company dancing there in, in a Mario Mertz show. Grand Union in the top left made a, an amazing performance and installation in our lobby. Trisha Brown's work um, in a pond, you know, all of these artists working between disciplines, which is how artists are really working today, has been in our DNA from the very start. And so um, I'm currently working on a, on a, with several colleagues in the visual and performing arts department on a three-year initiative that brings together our departments much, much closer together. It supports looking back at our history and, and surfacing new scholarship, but also it supports eight new productions with artists whom we invite to do something that they never really had the chance to do before. So I'll just play this, um, this clip while I talk over it. One of these, the first artist actually that we invited was um, the Cypriot choreographer and dancer Maria Hassabi, who created um, an amazing piece which is called Staging. Um, and I'll just let this play. I'll just talk over it. Um, 
staging was presented in, um, in the context of our Merce Cunningham uh, retrospective, which you see here. We acquired the Merce Cunningham Dance Company archive, which um, has all of these incredible materials that relate to the way that Cunningham would, would collaborate with you know, Jasper Johns, Robert Rauschenberg, Ray Kalakubo. And we commissioned Maria to make a new piece. Here you see it's two iterations. This is the solo that was presented inside of the galleries. And on the pink carpet is a quartet. Maria's work is in really about stillness, the relationship between image, sculpture. Um, this is a work which is choreographed on a three-hour loop, where dancers count in their head the seconds, and they move through a series of very, very, very carefully choreographed poses. And as you see them in, you know, performing, you, they barely move. They're, they're hardly moving, but I promise they, they are. They're moving from one pose to the next. For Maria, this was the first time that her work was presented as if it was a sculpture, as if it was, you know, an object in the gallery space. It was a, a key moment for her to think about, well, how does, she, how does she use those spaces? What does it mean to place a dance work in the gallery context? And for us, it certainly pushed us in terms of how we can do that in a gallery space. But crucially, it also pushed us in a new direction in terms of acquiring work. And so this particular work, the solo, is the second non-object-based artwork to enter our permanent collection. The first was Tino Segal's in 2008. Um, and so I had the, a real pleasure of working with Maria for 18 or so months to really think through, well, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you acquire a piece of dance? And so um, after it's showing at the Walker, Maria rethought the piece a little bit and includes now this sculptural element, which is a pink line. She's never sold an artwork before, and so as we started thinking through this, um, she came up with a really beautiful proposal, which is that we can, we, what we have acquired is the dance, but we've also acquired the work in two other iterations. We can present it as an archival version, which is a mannequin, the pink line on the floor in the video that I just showed you a bit of, or we can show a sculptural version, which is a pink line on the floor, and then a paper stack, as if it was a Gonzales Torres. And the paper stack is just the same sheet from a script. As part of the acquisition, we received this huge amount of kind of collateral that I worked through with her. And the agreement that we entered into was that the work would be, <coughs> for, for Maria, it's really important that body-to-body -body transmission, which is a term that I think Simone Forty really started, um, the idea that you can teach this piece, but only by you know interacting with someone who has performed the work before. We agreed with Maria that we would only show the live work if she or one of her identified teachers came to tweak the work when it was presented at the Walker. We have all of the description. We have a teaching video. We have everything. We can produce the work, but the condition of its showing is that she or one of her representatives comes and just fine tunes it. She will train dancers every five years who are younger than her to learn the piece, and we will we'll get a growing pool of people who can oversee that. But the agreement we entered into, which is something we've never done before, is that if there's no one alive in the future, Maria or one of her teachers, we lose the right to show the live work. The live work expires, and then we can only show the sculptural or the archival version. And that's a really interesting thing, because as a collection, you know, you might have conservation issues in terms of paper fading, but that kind of lifelong agreement is, this is the first one that we've entered into. 
And there are several works in our collection now that we're pursuing where that kind of philosophy is, is, is more and more ingrained in what we do. Um, I do have one more slide, but I'm conscious that we should probably open up to questions. Maybe it will come out for your questions. I, I can talk about this as well, but um, some of you might have followed the controversy that happened at the Walker two years ago um, regarding the work of Sam Durant. This is a sculpture called Scaffold, which you can see in the, on the left-hand side. Um, when I started at the Walker, I oversaw the production of this work. Um, we had a huge renovation of the sculpture garden in 2017. And I arrived too late, for really, to, you know, it wasn't a time where more curatorial decisions were made, but we were really just producing. I oversaw this piece, which I had experienced before. Um, the work is a sculpture that consists of seven structures meshed together. Each of these structures references a U.S. state-sanctioned execution. Um, so there's a gallows that references the hanging of Saddam Hussein. Scout, you know, galleries that refer to Rainy Bethia, the Lincoln conspirators, really, really different moments in U.S. history in which the state sanctioned someone's execution. Crucially, the work included a reference to the gallows you see illustrated in the bottom right corner, which was used in Minnesota about two and a half hours from the Walker in 1862 in the execution of 38 uh, Dakota men. Um, which was approved by um, President Lincoln. And this, was, uh, this is a structure that it has never been photographed, it has never been memorialized, and it is the largest structure which you can see marks the perimeter of the piece. Um, the work was shown in Germany as part of Documenta, which it was commissioned for. It was then shown in The Hague. You can see that bottom left corner where it was used as a, as a platform for public programs around human rights. It was shown in Scotland and then it was shown in Minneapolis, where it faced huge protests because of its reference to the Dakota 38. Um, and so before the Sculpture Garden even opened, we faced really strong protests from the Dakota community who demanded that the work was taken down, which we did. Um, we had a mediation with the Dakota elders, and you can see the former director, Olga Bizo and Sam, there in the top right corner. Um, and as part of that mediation, Several different results came through. Um, the work was taken down. The work still exists in the Walker's permanent collection. However, at the request of the Dakota elders, Sam rescinded and gave over his artistic license and copyright of the work. So technically, the Dakota nation owns the right to the artwork. Um, and then several internal um, changes were made in terms of how the Walker engages with the Dakota community. We're in the process now of commissioning a Dakota artist to make a work for the sculpture garden. Um, so in terms of institutional culture and process, the, the situation has changed quite a bit. Um, but I, I bring it up because it's very um, interesting to also just spend time in Australia and see how different visibility of First Nations artists is here, even opening tonight's program land acknowledgement is something that just never happens in the US. It's not part of it's not part of any really institutional culture. So um, it's a really it's been a key learning moment that I think we're doing a lot of still learning from. Um, but I brought that up because it always comes up and we're always open, you know, to talking about it. But.